Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Okay, everybody there? We need me to wait. Good. Okay, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. It should be a pretty familiar passage to us. Uh, I know that I have read this passage many times and heard it in many sermons. And just in the last month, uh, I, I quoted this in another sermon I did. And, and Pastor Jose quoted this sermon in... Uh, in the past month. And I'm not complaining. I can't get over this, these few verses here. Um, this is a go-to section in scripture. Um, my, my Argentinian grandfather, he, can, he recites this verse to me from mem- memory every now and then when, when we're at the dinner table together in Spanish. So this is a very uh, cherished section of scripture we're about to go into. And there's a reason people are quoting this passage so much. Uh, there, it's, it's so good, for lack of better words. It's so good. Um, this is what separates the men from the boys, theologically speaking, if you would allow me to use that colloquialism. For generations, Christians have cherished these words of Scripture, this specific section, because it has helped guard the church against heresy, but more importantly, it has helped Christians in every generation contemplate the glory of of Jesus, who Jesus is, uh, essentially. So it really is a great privilege that I get to preach this passage tonight. When when, when Alex sent out the the schedule where where the, us teachers could sign up, I this was the first one. I got it. I was the first one to get in there. I clicked the link and I instantly picked this passage. <laughs> so so uh, tonight tonight um, I'm excited. But do feel a, a, I think, a warranted responsibility for you guys to do, to do the very best that we can together to be faithful to this text and, and consider what God has to show for us here. So this, this passage strikes very much at the, at the foundation of Christianity. If we were to be called Christianity... Our view of Jesus Christ is essential. So what is the biblical view of Christology? That's the fancy name for it. Christology. What do we believe about Jesus himself? So tonight is going to serve as a moment to explore the depths of the claims of Jesus' pre-existence, his incarnation, his obedience, his exaltation, his glorification... And uh, that's, that's very much how I'm mentally organizing this passage. 
But I want to say, before we get into the technical stuff, if you will, I just want to remind you that there is something personal and corporate for us to take away from this. Okay, and, and look at how the passage starts. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. Okay, so although it's highly theological, uh, Paul is using high Christology as the basis of the commands and the practical things he's telling the people to do in the Philippian church. Okay, so it's not like, all right, over here we're doing like a theology seminar. Over here we're doing some practical stuff. Paul doesn't see a separation. He's using theology as the basis of telling people this is what we should do as Christians. So after we've done some exposition in each of these, four, in each of these categories that I, that I said earlier, we will consider the implications for us individually and corporately. When I say corporately, I mean as a, as a church. Um, so um, we certainly want to pray for these things to be so in our lives. Okay, so first of all, I want us to list all the things Paul says about Jesus. I, just, I want to write them on the board so that they're just there. And, and uh, it's, just, it's just there and it'll be more ingrained in our minds. So uh, verse 6. Let me see how I can do this. Verse 6 says he was in the form of God. Okay. In the form of God. Maybe you guys can help me out so I don't have to keep walking back and forth. Um, next thing is equality with God. Next thing is emptied himself. Okay, so so before I go further, these are the I'm gonna write the categories here. So this is referring to pre-existence, Jesus' pre-existence, and his deity. That means that means God, Godity, his Godness, the fact that he's God. Okay, or God status. Yeah. So, emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. Uh, literally, he took on the form of a slave. Okay. Um, born in the likeness of men. So, born. Likeness of men. Okay. Oh, but, okay, thank you. Um, so, obedient. Wait, wait, what's the next one? He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Humbled himself. Okay. Obedient to the point. Obedient even to death on a cross. Okay, so this would be. The, is that the last one of like. Good. Yeah. So this would this would refer to the category of Jesus' incarnation. Anyone know what that means? Yes. In Spanish, en la carne. In the flesh. So the fact that Jesus is found in the flesh, he became flesh, and this is also emphasizing his obedience. Now there's a correlation between these two. There's a logical connection and we'll get into that in a second and the last section is about Jesus' exaltation and glorification 
Okay, so it says God has exalted him, highly exalted him. This don't have the name above every name. Name, so I'll put name above all names. Every shall bow. Every knee shall bow to the name of Jesus. Every knee bow. Every time. Okay. But really, it's summed up in this. Yeah. Exalted him, gave him the name of all, all names. So this is, and then the last thing is to the glory of God the Father. To the Father's, man, this is really deteriorating, I'm sorry. To the Father's glory. Okay, so this would be, sorry, let me make the bracket bigger. And then this would be, remember the words I said? Exaltation. Exaltation. Exaltation and glorification. Okay, so this will be a mental map. Because because quite frankly, there's so much, like I said, so much theology here. And so um, I'm trying to help you organize, because this helped me organize the passage in my mind. Okay, so let's go section by section. Verse 6. So like I said, verse 6 is about Jesus' pre-existence. And his deity. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, so pre-existence. I mean, the word is really gives it away literally, but it means to exist before everything else. Deity uh, means God's status. So Paul is saying that Jesus has always existed, even before he was physically born in Bethlehem. And he is also saying that Jesus is equal with God the Father. He is just as much God as God the Father is God. He's not God Jr. He's not, you know, God the light version. He is truly God. He's just as much God as the Father is God. He's always been, always will be completely God. So this, this connects with what other sections of the New Testament say. John 1 should come to mind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So He was already in the beginning. The Word is with God, a distinct person. Uh, the Word was God, meaning He's always been God's status. And He was in the beginning with God. That, that's important because some people are like, Jesus was an idea that God had. But when that wasn't, He wasn't a full person until He was born. It's like an idea he had. But it says he, he was a full-blown person in the beginning with God. So those, those verses right there, every single word is so important for us theologically. Okay, Colossians 1.15, it says he is the image of the invisible God. So God the Father doesn't have an image, but Jesus is the image of God the Father, if you will. Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. One of a kind. It's like the he's the crest, the seal of God. First um, Peter one twenty. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world was made, uh, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. And here's Jesus' own words. This is the way Jesus talked about himself. Look at this, John seventeen. I mean, this is the nail in the coffin right here. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I already had with you before the world existed. 
So it wasn't like Jesus was waiting to die on the cross and then get glory. It's he already had all the glory before the world existed. He had just as much glory as God the Father had glory. And then John 17, 24, he says, I desire all, that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Okay, so Jesus, according to Jesus' own words, Peter's words, the author of Hebrews' words, Paul's words, they all have the same understanding of Jesus, that he has always existed as God. So the way Paul says it in Philippians is pre-human Jesus was already in the form of God. He already had equality with God. These aren't things that came later in time. So there are some mistakes that people have made historically about these doctrines of Christ. Some people say, okay, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a regular human until God upgraded or adopted him to become a divine person. He's like, man, I like that guy. I'm going to get him on my team. Boom. He's a God now. Or he's God now. So, okay, so that's wrong. Some people say Jesus of Nazareth became God because he, he was perfectly obedient. He lived a perfect life. And then after he died, God was like, well, he lived a perfect life. So I'll just resurrect him now. And then he'll ascend into heaven. Okay, that's wrong. Some people say Jesus of Nazareth was God the Father. But he was, he was switching into a different mode. It's like God transformed into Jesus and then after he did the thing for 33 years he transformed back into like a spiritual mode okay so all these are wrong and I could go on mentioning many different uh, heresies about Jesus but ultimately uh, the best way for us to know the difference between the truth and a counterfeit is to get very familiar with the real thing so here's what Christians say before Jesus took upon himself a human nature, he has always had and always will have a divine nature or a God nature. So this doesn't just mean that Jesus has always been a godly person. No, we mean to say what the Bible says, that even before he was a human person, Jesus has always been a God person. Truly God. Always completely God. So consider the implications of Paul's wording. He was in the form of God. He already was. He already had God form. Paul also acknowledges Jesus' equality with God before becoming human. Which means he was already equal with God. So equal means sharing the same quality or status. So this is what Paul is saying. I'll rephrase it with my own remixed words because you can do that with the English language sometimes. Paul is saying in Philippians 2.6, Jesus always had God form and God's status. So here's the last thing I'll say about this verse. What does it mean when it says Jesus did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped? A thing to be grasped is a weird phrase. It doesn't really sound very impressive, right? Like what, what's the big deal about grasping something? So uh, whenever you see a weird phrase, something you can easily do to help you is to compare it with some other good translations of the Bible. And I've done this before. Uh, so it, it's really a blessing that we have the Bible in our language, but not just one translation, but several good translations. So we can utilize that. And sometimes I even look at the Spanish translation to get a better essence of the word. Sometimes that helps me. Okay, so the, the CSB 
That's the new, that's the newly released Christian Standard Bible. It says he did not count, it, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Does that help a little bit? Something to be exploited. Okay. Amplified version says he did not count this equality with God as a thing to be eagerly grasped or retained. Okay. Uh, Holman Christian Standard and NIV say. Something to be used for his own advantage. Okay. Um, what, you want to tell me the King James? Is that what you're, what you're pointing at me for? Okay, what, do you, what, what does it say? It says, um, who being in the form of God do not consider... Okay, just read the last part. Robbery to be equal with God. Robbery to be equal with God. Okay. So, okay, so, so here's, here's going to be my attempt to try and explain the imagery. So the imagery, the imagery would be like when you're playing a video game with your siblings or your friends. Doesn't it say a lot about someone when they are easily willing or not easily willing to give up the controller? Doesn't that say a lot about someone? Okay, so, okay, so, so imagine Jesus. He wasn't so desperate to keep. He wasn't so desperate to keep himself away from this human form. This. This lowly form. An infinite being was willing to impose certain finite uh, limitations on himself in the human form. Okay, so that, that's the best I'm going to try. So think of the controller. Someone doesn't want to give it up. It's like, man, that's a weak person. I can't give it up. But someone that freely gives it, that's a, that's a strong person. That person is bigger than just some little video game. Okay, so the imagery is kind of like that, kind of. That's a really crude example, to be honest with you, but um, there it is. So, so some questions for us to consider. Maybe, you know, you want to consider these for a small group after. Why did Paul even bother saying this to the Philippians? Some of you might be thinking, okay, this is cool for you, Jeffrey, because you're like a Bible teacher and stuff. But what in the world does that have to do with us? Like this Trinitarian stuff is too complicated. Okay, well, well, didn't... So Paul just got done saying, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So what does is, what is Jesus, uh, Jesus not counting his equality with God, a thing to be grasped? How does that relate to counting others more significant than yourselves? Okay, so we'll answer that after. We're not doing the raising hands thing, sorry. So, so what do the pre-existence and the deity of Christ have to do with Paul's commands in verses 3 and 4? Are they separate? I'm trying to argue to you. They're not a separate thing. Uh, he's, making, he's making the basis for the commands on Jesus. Okay, let's move on to verses 7 and 8. Our second theological category, which is uh, incarnation and obedience of Christ. So we'll take this phrase by phrase, starting with emptied himself. This is another weird one, right? Emptied himself. So, so we just got done acknowledging what Jesus had, what he, what he was full of, what he had in his hand before the world existed, which was uh, his, his deity, his God form, his God status. So he, this is what he was filled with. Okay. Um, so the phrase emptied himself or emptying is probably in connection to what he already has. If someone says to you, and if someone comes to you and says, "I just emptied a water cooler," 
you would assume that cooler was already full of water, right? Okay. But we have to be careful with this phrase. Um, has anyone seen American Gospel, Christ Alone? Has anyone seen that documentary? Okay, so there's, okay, put your hand up. There's a really good part in that. This is probably the hardest part in, in that documentary, one of the most technical parts, when they start talking about this thing called kenosis theology. Because there are some people that go around saying, when Jesus entered the world as a human, he, it's like he pressed pause on his God form, and then he, he was just human. He, he set aside his deity in the sense of he wasn't God while he was on earth. Okay, so that's why I'm saying we have to be careful when we look at this phrase emptying, um, because history has shown some people don't know how to handle it. Okay. So, we don't have an infinite time to go into all the Christological heresies, but we'll address this one very quickly. So, one thing you have to remember, this isn't the only verse in the Bible, okay? So, the, nor is it the only verse in the Bible that talks about Jesus' incarnation. Every verse in the Bible is supposed to be understood in connection to all the other verses. So, whatever this verse says, it must be in agreement with what the rest of the Bible says about Jesus, so here's how Christians should respond to the theological systems uh, that, that say this about Jesus, say those wrong things about Jesus, namely kenosis theology. And so we say Colossians 2.9. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of deity dwelt in Jesus while he was still in his body. Okay, so... So Jesus emptying himself cannot mean that he stopped being God for 33 years and then he reopens that when he ascends into heaven. It cannot mean that. Because Colossians 2.9 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay, so he was fully, he was fully truly God while he was in the flesh. And by the way, he continues to have human flesh and he will, he will continue to have human flesh in the new heavens and the new earth. <laughs> Mind blown, right? So Paul clarifies what emptying himself means. The verse itself, itself, excuse me, comes with a built-in explanation. So we address what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean he stopped being God. Well, what does it mean? Okay, so look at the verse. It says he emptied himself by, meaning this is the way that he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So that's Paul clarifying what emptying himself means. It means taking the form of a servant. It means Jesus being born in the likeness of men. Or Jesus being born as a human being. So Jesus himself is not about pausing or removing his God status uh, for a period of time. Jesus is emptying himself in Philippians 2 is referring to uh, what I'm going to say are, are two main things. Uh, form and purpose. Uh, the, the wording, the, so the emphasis is about the form he takes and why he takes it. So this is confirmed when you look at the logical conclusion Paul is, uh, is progressing to. He says, being found in human form. That's Paul otherwise saying, okay, now that we got the fact that Jesus was really human... What did Jesus do with his humanity? So that, the question of form is human form. 
He had a truly human form. Well, why did he take on a human form? It says, he took on a human form to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, Paul is concluding that the point of Jesus' incarnation has to do with his obedience, ultimately. His death on the cross, which is kind of like a summary of see to what extent he was willing to obey. Even death, a gruesome death. That's, that shows the extent of his obedience. It's like a summary. So let's answer this question ourselves. Why did Jesus need to be born as a human being? Why couldn't he just make a huge cross fall out of the sky and it has a sign on it that says, it is finished. And there's a bunch of blood on it. Why didn't he just do that? Or why didn't he send a really good angel, like an archangel, to die for human beings? Why couldn't he just do that? Or why couldn't he just make like a really huge lamb where the blood could cover the whole earth? So why did Jesus need to be a human, an actual human being? Okay, so let's see how the rest of Scripture answers this. Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, we all are just as much human as the next guy in here. He himself, Jesus, Jesus himself likewise partook or participated of the exact same things. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Okay, this last verse 16. Surely it is not angels that Jesus helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In other words, Jesus came as a human because he was going to represent humans. Jesus didn't come as, as a dog. He didn't come as a tree. He didn't come as a table. He didn't come as an angel. He didn't even represent angels on the cross. He represented humans. Well, how do you know? He was human. That's how we know. He died for exactly what all of us are, human beings. So here's the other thing to consider. Not just his, that he was truly human, but his obedience. So look, 1 Peter 2, or sorry, Hebrews 4.15. It says... One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. First Peter 2 says, he committed no sin. Romans 8, 3 through 4 is what I read last week. It says, he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in his flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Okay, so what we just read says that Christ fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Lived a perfect life that is perfectly obedient to God according to the law of God. So naturally, you can see there's a logical overlap between Him being a human and Him being perfectly obedient. That's why Paul is putting them next to each other. That's why you can't help but talk about one really without the other. So these are the two key, com- two, excuse me, key components of Jesus' earthly ministry. First of all, Jesus needed to be truly human, incarnated, in order to truly represent human beings. So that's, that's one, representation. That is the necessity of his incarnation. Secondly, Jesus needed to be truly human in order to fulfill the law, which all human beings are obligated to obey, but we fail to obey perfectly. That is the necessity of Jesus' obedience. So Jesus' incarnation and obedience are about representation and fulfillment of the law. Representation of human beings 
and fulfillment of the law as a human being on behalf of human beings. That's the theology of verses 7 and 8. Okay, so application questions. What does this have to do with the Philippians? Once again, this is, this is some cool Bible stuff. But what does this have to do with us being Christians and being a church? What does it have to do with us? How do the doctrines of Jesus' incarnation and impeccability, that means perfect obedience without sin, apply to us today? So again, look at the command that we, that we did last week. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count yourselves more significant than others. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what does Jesus' incarnation obedience have to do with that? That's the question, which we can discuss in small group. Okay, moving on to the final section, which is doctrine of exaltation and glorification of Jesus. So the first thing we should notice is the fact that Paul starts this section by saying, therefore. That's a, that's a word that indicates to us a certain flow of argument. It's a flow of rhetoric. So when an author puts therefore, especially if the thing they're writing is in this format where he's like trying to prove something or argue something, prose format, it means the author is finishing off a main point, a main argument. It's like Paul is saying, this is the main point of all the stuff I just said. So because of Jesus' pre-existence, his deity, his incarnation, his obedience, this is the good stuff we were trying to get to the whole time. The exaltation and the glorification of Jesus. Okay. So because of this, these first two categories, we get to this. God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So first let's look at God, God has highly exalted him. Jesus isn't worthy because we personally think he's great. Because we personally admire him. Man, I like the way that he talks. Man, he's so nice. Okay? Because, I mean, you could say that about a bunch of people. That's not ultimately why Jesus is worthy. That stuff is true. But that's not ultimately why Jesus is going to be sung about for eternity. Um, so when, when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, what we would normally call the triumphant or the triumphal entry, look at, look at what he says to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, as the people are singing about it, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're not allowed to praise you. Tell them to stop. And then Jesus answers, I tell you, if these people were silent... The very stones would cry out. <laughs> so, Jesus is saying, I don't need worshipers to like make myself feel better. I'm glorious because God says so. God has highly exalted him. Not we have highly exalted him because of the nice thing he did for him. God has highly exalted him. That's the highest, that's the highest praise you could get. God from God. So God even makes inanimate rocks on the ground sing praise to Jesus. Okay. But exaltation is not just talking about people People who are going to sing worship songs about Jesus. That's not all it's talking about. It doesn't just mean that Jesus is nice to think about, nice to talk about, although that's true. Exaltation is a term that is more specifically referring to a status or a role that Jesus has. Uh, exalted is talking about lifting up. 
It's, it's, he's given Jesus a certain rank or a certain position. That's mainly what exaltation is about. So when we read this, we read God has highly positioned Jesus. So just how great of a position is this? Well, look at Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is literally King David saying, Yahweh said to my Adonai, my king, sit on my right hand. That's King David saying, my king. It's like, well, wait, who's the king above you? Because you're the king of Israel. So who's the one above you? Jesus. So David was talking about Jesus when he wrote that. Yahweh said to my king. So right hand. Right hand, I mean, let's be honest, that doesn't sound very impressive. Right hand. I mean, you could just stand right here and you're at my right hand. So what? Um, what's the big deal about being at the right hand? Well, um, let me help you understand the significance of right hand. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this person that's like a son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so how about that? That's what it means to sit at the right hand of God. Whoever is at the right hand of God is this guy in Daniel 7. He rides a cloud up to heaven. And he's a human looking guy. And God gives this human looking person. Glory and authority. That is all encompassing. And an eternal kingdom. In heaven. On earth. Under the earth. That's what it means for Jesus to be exalted. Exalted, excuse me. Daniel 7 says he's the one who rides the cloud to heaven. The cloud rider. He's the one at the right hand of God. The eternal king. That's why Jesus uses the son of man more than any other title for himself in the gospels. That's why Psalm 110 is the most commonly quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Because Jesus and the apostles are obsessed with this exaltation of Jesus. So, once again, what does Jesus' exaltation have to do with our humble service to one another? How are we supposed to have this mind among ourselves? Because really, none of us sit at the right hand of God. So how are we supposed to have that mentality? None of us were God and became human how in the world are we supposed to relate to that? He's the only one that did that. That's, isn't that the point? That he's the only one that did that? How are we supposed to relate and have application? What is the application from Jesus' exaltation and glorification for us? Okay, now that we've sorted out everything that Paul is saying about Jesus, what is he saying for us? Well, let me help you out. The answer is right at the beginning of verse 5 and right at the end of verse 11. It's like, a, it's like a sandwich. So you go back to the beginning of verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then go to the end. 
Let every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So make no mistake about it. This is a command. Okay. This is a command. This isn't some passive, abstract, wow, we had a nice theology talk. This is a command. We're being told to do something. So, you know, this is what we also refer to as an imperative. And we don't need to be scared of imperatives in the Bible. We, we should be suspicious of our legalistic tendencies and our antinomian tendencies. But uh, there's no reason for us to apologize or shy away from what Paul is saying here. He's commanding us to have the mind of Christ while we are... What? Sorry. Have the mind that Christ had while He was on earth. Okay. But here's the key to the verse that should dismantle any legalistic or antinomian. That means no law. Application. Look at the wording. Very carefully. The mind of Christ is yours. If you are in Christ, it already is yours. This mind of Christ is yours in Christ Jesus. So we have the mind of Christ by being in Christ. So that's why I've titled this sermon. I don't know if you're wondering. Having the mind of Christ in Christ. So ultimately, what does having the mind of Christ mean in the life of human beings, ourselves, Christian humans? Well, it's not, well, obviously for us, it's not about once being truly God and then becoming a human. It's not just about dying on a cross. In essence, what is, what is Paul calling us to do? Humbling ourselves to fully maximize the glory of God the Father. That is exactly what Jesus did. He, he looked at all that he had, and he said, how can I maximize the glory of God? And then he did what he did. So for us, I mean, we don't have the infinite riches of heaven at our disposal. So we're not asked to do that stuff. But we are asked to ask ourselves, what do I have that the Lord has given me? How can I maximize that and leverage that for the glory of God the Father and count others more significant than me? So look at what defined Jesus' life. He says, my food, in John 4, 34, Jesus says to his disciples, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. All, everyone in here can relate to that. Everyone that's a Christian in here can relate to that. Or we should relate to that. The very thing that keeps us going, that motivates us each day, the sustenance of our lives, what sustains us, should be doing the will of Him who has sent us out to accomplish His work. We can relate to that. We should relate to that. John 8, 29, Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So consider this. Jesus, who had infinite riches and glory already there for Him in heaven, He had it in His hands already. He didn't count that God form or that God status something to be exploited or retained or to just stay this way, just for His own benefit. But He emptied Himself to serve us miserable poor people. To save us unworthy people. Out of his richness, he has made us rich. By his poverty, he has ministered to us the poor in the spirit. In spirit, excuse me. So he took an inventory of all that he had, all that he could give, 
And he gave everything he had for the glory of God the Father. So we must do the same as individuals and as a local church body. So let's all take an inventory of all that God has given us as individuals and as a church. Mind you, it's all from God anyway. And let's ask ourselves, how can my spiritual riches in Christ be a gift to those around me in spiritual bankruptcy? I'll finish with Romans 11, 36 through 12, 1. From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and for the, the unending depth of contemplating the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So it's mind-blowing to think that we have the mind of Christ because we are in Christ. So God, in this moment, would you, would you mature us all and, and, and help us all reflect on our lives and take an inventory? What has God given me what do I have that I'm, that I'm holding on to selfishly? How can I lay down my life for other people? A continual living sacrifice for other people. God, we thank you for our ministry and our service to other people. Not, not uh, totally consisting of just our performance. But that this is all in light of redemption. Of Christ's finished work for us. So God, we thank you for giving us Christ. For giving us all the riches of Christ. His knowledge. His wisdom. The fruits of the Spirit. We thank you, God. And so, and so we are not saying that you haven't given us anything. You have given us everything. We ask that you would grow us now. That you would grow these fruits by the Spirit. That these things would, would increase in our lives. That we love each other more and more. That we love those around us more and more. That we glorify God and point to Him and point others to Him more and more. So, so may our lives, the very food of our lives, be like what Jesus said. To do the will of Him who sent us to accomplish His work. That we would be set on always doing the things that are pleasing to You. We thank You, God. For all that Christ has done. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.